Several weeks ago, Maria and I were able to attend what was called an at-the-table gathering, which is an initiative of Lancaster County Community Foundation to just get neighbors talking and get feedback on the aspects of city life that people valued and thought were working well, as well as areas for improvement and innovation. So my family and I got together a few friends and neighbors, some cobbler and ice cream, and just started talking what augments our own lives and those of others in our neighborhood, what excites us, what saddens us, and what could be done to make a fulfilling life in the city more accessible to people. Among the things highlighted was the pleasure of having unexpected connections with a variety of people simply because our tightly packed and row-homed lives put us in the same places at the same times. Or for those in the group who have children, their kids formed connections for them, um, befriending other kids in school, and then pulling their parents along after them. But despite some of these beautiful connections, a main theme that emerged in our talking was the definite presence of divisions. As many of us here know, these boundaries are even geographically expressed in the city. You know, you've got dividing lines that run through the city, and the four different quadrants are pretty clearly squared off. And among these areas, multiple variables, like ethnicity, access to education, socioeconomic class, vary a lot. So something that our group kept coming back to was, naturally, how can these divisions be blurred at a societal level? And furthermore, in the midst of this context in which we're so used to divisions, how do we even begin to form a workable concept of hospitality? Especially, what does hospitality towards those who are different from us even look like? How can we even begin to visualize this? And so as we process this concept throughout the week, the concept of hospitality as a multifaceted discipline began to emerge. And this fascinated us, and so we began to dive into it more, and we started to explore what we see as being several underlying disciplines of hospitality. Perhaps one of the most prominent ideas that stood out to us comes in the form of a question. Where do we place our sense of identity? And how does that influence each of our standards of normal? Before we can even begin to reach out and connect with others, we have to understand what exactly we're extending to them. You know, what core aspects of our worldviews, you know, our own life experiences or biases do we respond to them with? And how do we define our own sense of selfhood? And in thinking of these questions, um, I think of our reading from Galatians today, in which Paul sets out to point-blank tell the Galatians exactly what their defining and unifying characteristic is. And to understand the powers of persuasion that Paul has to employ, we have to first understand the mindset of his audience. You know, if you can this mindset. The Galatians are a group of Jewish Christians, you know, followers of Christ, but with a common religious and ethnic history that runs deep. You know, you are a moral, righteous, God-centered people, and the Torah articulates and embodies every single detail of this. Um, It lays out everything that you consider to be, you know, the essence of your identity as a people. And then along comes Paul, a phrase that I feel like in the Bible may so often, may as well be, here comes trouble or something. Um, and throughout these several verses that we're um, working with today, Paul manages to work in reminders of and calls to unity and a shared identity in Christ five times. 
And when these early biblical writers work in that much repetition, you kind of got to feel, you know, you know they've got an agenda. And so Paul is hammering this shift in identity, this reorientation into the Galatian Christians, pushing them to realize the unifying power of an identity in Christ, which, though expressed in the law, goes far beyond it and encompasses much more. And so my thought is this. In the same way, where do we East Chestnutters place our own identities, collectively and individually? In our own family histories and life histories? In being Mennonite? In other aspects of culture? Or even in being good? So I'm going to step aside while Maria shares what some of the aspects for time in Tanzania and the ways in which that affects all of our own concepts of standards of normal. While I studied in Tanzania for three months, and I only spent about a week of it living in a village with a young Tanzanian couple, it was one of the most impactful experiences that I had. And it's also one of the best examples of hospitality that I can think of. Um, My host, Baba and Mama, mother and father, took two strangers, me and another student on my program, from a different country, from a different culture, into their home for eight days and invited us to do every single part of life with them, from cooking and working in the fields to going to church choir practice and praying together before bed. Um, Like I said, there's just no better example of hospitality. So even though it was only a small portion of my time, I'm going to talk about that today. Um, It was really hard for me not knowing how my host parents were perceiving me. With the language barrier and the cultural differences, it was hard for me to feel like I was fully and properly expressing myself. And I have this tendency to overanalyze myself in social situations, um, especially stressful ones like being immersed in a different culture. And so that's what I did. I self-analyzed. I worried about whether or not the things that I was trying to say translated the way that I wanted them to and whether my words and actions sent them the messages that I wanted them to, that I was interested in their lives, and I was so grateful that they were willing to share it with me. And I worried about why they laughed when I said or tried to say certain things in Swahili. I was trying my best. I was only really looking at the differences between us, though, the differences in our cultures and our cultural identities, But as time went on and I got more comfortable with my Baba and Mama, I was able to look away from this self-analytical mirror I had constructed in front of myself. I stopped overanalyzing my own behavior and contrasting it to theirs, and instead just looked at the fact that we were all humans, cultural identity aside. I looked outward from my own cultural idea that Laughing when someone else is trying poorly to speak your language is rude. And I instead saw the human tendency toward laughter in uncomfortable situations. And I saw the potential for laughter to draw humans together. So naturally, I learned how to laugh at myself. I stopped trying to control their perceptions of me. And then I was more able to fully embrace them and to share life with them as fully as possible. And looking away from myself, I realized what an incredible amount of patience they had with me 
and that they truly treated me like a daughter, though they were only a couple years older than myself. And I felt free to express myself in any way that I knew how, without fear that it would get lost in translation. One day their pastor, who spoke English, came to see if we were having any challenges in communication, and my Baba quickly told him that we didn't need any help. He said, before they came, I was afraid. I didn't know what I was going to do with these foreigners, but now that they're here, I am so happy, and I want them to stay. And it just changed my whole outlook. It made me so happy um, that we were no longer foreigners to him, um, different from them. You might say there was no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, Tanzanian or American, native Swahili speaker or novice Swahili speaker. We were just people. And the joy that they took in my efforts to speak their language and to live their life the way that they do was contagious. And by paying attention to and focusing on that instead of myself, my whole experience changed. Beyond that, I think it's Maria's probably touching on here. Hospitality requires a lot of risk. You know, you're extending yourself to the world beyond yourself. Scary business. You know, will our identity be, I don't know, diluted? You know, as we're letting more of ourselves out and opening ourselves up to receive others and their influences, what will happen to our core self? And here, I'm reminded of some of the words of Thomas Keating, um, who's always a really interesting theologian to me. But um, when he says, if you want to know yourself, talk to God. He knows. And he continues on to say that any identity at all, apart from God, is not it. So to have no identity, or an identity that you don't know and are willing that it be anything that God wants it to be, this is what the transformative process is doing. A shift in identity. When we enter into the process of this transformation, this shift, we can begin to internalize the source of our identity. Paul lays it out pretty straightforwardly, saying that all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Classic Paul, cutting to the chase. So if we start to internalize this reality that our identity is fixed in Christ, then we don't have to fear that it will be lost or subsumed even upon opening ourselves up to the world. We can live into the world, relating to people, connecting to people, letting people in, as well as letting ourselves out. A more fluid concept of identity, you might say. And so doesn't it, doesn't it follow then that, that we creatures being made in the image of God can trust that we will be preserved, even if our core, I, well, if our core identity is placed in Christ, because I think as Paul alludes to here, our identity is fixed in Christ, who has historically tended to hold constant. So it seems like a logical step of extension to me that with this identity in Christ, this unity, this oneness that follows can allow for an incredible diversity of connections and interactions. And so again, 
where do we place our sense of identity? And what happens when we reframe our identity to be one of a communal identity in Christ? And as we were processing this, again, some of Maria's experiences in Tanzania were particularly relevant to some of these thoughts. I generally try to be a helpful person. One of my least favorite feelings is feeling like I am burdening anyone or inconveniencing anyone. So, living in someone else's house, eating their food, and trailing behind them, sort of like a puppy, was challenging for me. I also like to think of myself as a fairly competent person. I get along okay in the world. Well, in my world. In the world of a Tanzanian village, I am fairly clueless, I have learned. So I could not figure out why in the world this couple wanted me in their house. I was just making more work for them, in my mind. But one of Tanzanian's favorite sayings is, a guest is a blessing. I heard this over and over. My Baba and Mama said it all the time. Even when I was struggling through helping them with a chore that they could have done in the quarter of a time that it took me, or done it faster than it took them to teach me. Still, a guest is a blessing. You are so helpful. Another favorite line of theirs was, thank you for eating. This one got me. (laughs) They said it after every single meal, and they were sincerely thanking me just for eating their food, just for sharing a meal with them. And the more I heard these things, the more it really sunk in. They didn't only want me there if I pulled my weight and could be some kind of material help to them. They just genuinely wanted me there because I was a person, a sister in Christ. I was placing my own identity and sense of self-worth and what I was able to offer and what I was able to do to accomplish. But they were valuing me for eating with them for talking with them, working with them, praying with them. And I had to accept that to be able to accept their hospitality. By focusing on our bond, our shared identity as brothers and sisters in Christ, I could stop trying to prove myself and just open myself up to fellowship with them. Okay, so after we have this realization that our identity is one of oneness in Christ, so many doors are opened. We have the tendency to cling to things, or I know I have the tendency to cling to things that we think define us, whether they're things that are ingrained in us culturally or things we're good at that give us a sense of worth or personality traits that we can use to explain away the way that we behave, the way that we respond to things, the way that we do. In the case of the Galatians, they clung to the law, this thing that told them how to be and how to act. But the language in the passage says that they were imprisoned under the law. And those parts of our identity, those things that we cling to, can imprison us. And when we go through the shift, letting go of those things we cling to, and putting on the clothes of Christ, there's a new freedom there. There's freedom to be vulnerable. There's a freedom to engage the world in new and challenging ways. 
You don't have to be afraid of examining yourself and your worldview, of being transformed by new experiences and new relationships with people different than yourself. When your identity is fixed in Christ, as Mia said, and it ties you to those around you in oneness, no matter your differences, you're free to engage with people, with all people, and to show them hospitality. So Mia's going to share with you some of her own experiences with this idea of vulnerability. I work on a little organic farm called Paradise Organics. And my job definitely gives me a chance to practice that aspect of vulnerability known as humility. I'm the only member of the field crew who isn't a native Spanish speaker. And my Spanish is developing, and so the more I learn, the more I'm able to enter into and learn about my coworkers and their lives. And I'm trying really hard. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really plugging away at it. And by now, we all have this understanding, I think, that I am learning and trying really hard and that I'm just not going to speak with perfect grammar or comprehensive vocabulary and that I'm not always going to understand everything perfectly. Sometimes, oftentimes, you mess up. Sometimes you mix up your vocabulary and use the wrong form of the verb to like and tell someone that you like their husband romantically. You know, those things need to be sorted out. Needless to say, I get laughed at a lot, and for good reason. <laughs> to be honest, it's really for good reason. Um, and it's a necessary humility, I think. A forced humility. Which is, I think, part of, part of the beauty of it in that, I don't know, the humility doesn't always rely on me having particularly upstanding character on any given day to choose to you know, be an extremely humble, righteous person. It's just going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to be humbled. Um, so the sense of a forced humility. And in the midst of this all, one day, I realized that I felt so completely at ease. Not because I was adept in this situation, clearly, um, obviously not, but simply because I was being accepted by my very gracious co-workers in the vulnerable position that I'm in. And it's incredibly life-giving. To be vulnerable and to let go of placing your identity and being dignified or even just mildly socially acceptable is embarrassing and humbling and so deeply life-giving. So... This process of practicing hospitality toward those who are different than us starts with looking away from us and towards those around us, recognizing our common identity as children of God, as made in his image. And with that recognition, we are free to reach out in relationship, to engage with our neighbors, to start these conversations, and to extend hospitality to all. Now, Thomas Merton has this one prayer that we thought was particularly fitting, I think, to end this sermon on that has to do a lot with jumping into relationship and mystery before having to jump into certainty. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. 
I don't see the road ahead of me, and I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I'm following your will doesn't mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.